energy and air pollution will be one of the top five issues for the general election. We talk about Putin being in control. He's not really. It's the various factions under him and it suits them to have him at the front. You're trying to save for a house deposit and you'd have to save up some crazy amount of money. How on earth are you going to do that if a pint is £7? And there's certain key things that we want from India and there's certain key things that they want from us. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Lizzie Burden. So uh, the political world, certainly for Westminster, is back from recess and from the couple of weeks of party conferences. But the Israel-Hamas war is escalating. There's been this intense diplomatic effort from the United States, including the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. He is back in Israel today. He's been around uh, nine different countries in the region. Possibly also we'll see the US president Joe Biden visiting Israel. That seems to be the discussion today. And the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz may head to Israel on Tuesday, according to the German newspaper, built after, of course, the EU's Ursula von der Leyen visited. She was then praised for that visit, the support that the EU showed to Israel on that front by the Israeli ambassador to the EU who was speaking to us this morning. Controversial at home, though, to be uh, promising that support on behalf of the EU. Uh, But here in the UK as well, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, is going to address the war in Parliament this afternoon. Of course, over the weekend, there were thousands of pro-Palestine demonstrators taking to the streets in central London. More than a thousand Met police officers deployed for the march. And then this morning, Rishi Sunak also visiting a Jewish community site, reminding us of the repercussions on home soil. I look across the uh, channel to France, home to the biggest Jewish and Muslim communities in Europe, and it's already feeling the strain of war at home, these ancient wounds being reopened. Yeah, indeed. Well, with the Israeli army poised to stay a large-scale offensive in Gaza. The bombing of the area continues, but Israeli military said that they would refrain from targeting a particular part of North Gaza for four hours today to allow civilians safe passage to the south of the territory, which is what they've asked them to do, to leave. Earlier we spoke to Jonathan Conrickus, who is the spokesperson for the Israel Defence Forces. War isn't what we're looking for. But war was forced upon us by a bloodthirsty terrorist organization of subhumans that perpetrated some of the most worst atrocities seen in recent times. Uh, we're responding to that and we will rectify the situation and, make, and create a better future for, for ourselves and for our children. So the determination you can hear there from the IDF. Joining us now is Bloomberg Opinion columnist Mark Champion. Mark, thank you for your time. You heard there the Israeli military's description of Hamas as subhuman. How aggressive will the Israeli response be to that Hamas attack? Well, I think it's clear it will be uh, very uh, overwhelming, I think is the way to describe it. Um, They have... uh, 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 amassed an enormous uh, amount of hardware at the at the border with Gaza. Um, they have mobilized uh, more than 300,000 reservists. Um, this is going to be a, a large operation, uh, and the Israelis are fully aware that it also uh, won't be easy. Uh, Hamas has been um, uh, preparing for this, uh, digging underground to prepare for it, uh, no doubt preparing booby traps and all the other things that are actually common in urban warfare, which is one of the things that makes it uh, among the most uh, dangerous and difficult forms of warfare. 
multiplied uh, when you have a lot of civilians in place, um, and it's almost impossible to avoid uh, collateral cas casualties when they are. Um, that's why, uh, you know, if there's any piece of good news at the moment, it is that um, there have been uh, several hundred thousand uh, 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 Gaza uh, civilians who have moved out of the north uh, into, you know, safer areas towards the south. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully um, there will be enough time then to prepare uh, to get um, humanitarian aid corridors opened uh, from Egypt so that those people can be supplied with the water, food, power, tents, shelter, etc. that they need. Yeah, the question we can't seem to get answered is how and when they'll get to go back. But Mark, I wonder what the risks now are of a wider conflict and who that might mean. Well, I mean, the risks are, are very real, and that clearly is what the U.S. is concerned about um, uh, and why uh, Anthony Blinken has been uh, very busy in the kind of shuttle diplomacy, uh, visiting the uh, neighboring Arab states, uh, the Gulf states, um, and is now coming back to Israel. Um, you know, he's been, the U.S. Uh, has been, through back channels, uh, reportedly has been uh, sending messages uh, to Iran uh, not to uh, stoke the conflict and, and widen it. Um, the carrier fleets that the U.S. is uh, putting in place in the Mediterranean are designed uh, to deter uh, Hezbollah from attacking from the north. Uh, so, you know, this is a, clearly a very, very real and live concern. Uh, and both the U.S. Um, and the U.K., James Cleverly, has been uh, sending out similar messages. Um, and no doubt um, that will be part of the mess message of uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz if he comes to uh, Israel also. Does a visit from President Joe Biden change anything? I'm simply aware that there are such very different views on this from, you know, the two sides. Um, does actually the visit of Joe Biden, how does that change things? Does it delay anything? Well, it's a very good question and one to which I, I, I don't know the answer. Um, I suspect that the decision on whether to go uh, on, on the part of President Biden will be based on how he thinks that the uh, Israelis will react. Uh, so uh, I, if Biden does decide to go and, this, and it becomes clear that, uh, you know, that he is not going to be there and wouldn't go, if that meant being you know, present as the Israeli forces go in, um, then obviously that would create a delay and would create more time for Blinken to, you know, get the corridors open that he's been working on. Um, and, you know, they, from the Israeli point of view, um, you know, obviously um, desperate to, uh, you know, uh, respond uh, to what was an absolutely heinous attack. Um, and they want to respond quickly. Um, but from their point of view, militarily, um, there isn't a great deal of disadvantage to waiting. Um, so, you know, simply uh, put, Hamas is ready. Uh, they've been preparing for years. So, uh, you know, a few extra days or even an extra week or two um, in order to, you know, to get ready to prepare the ground, get more civilians out of the way. Militarily, mm -hmm. it shouldn't make a great deal of difference.
But Mark, when that moment comes, we've we've spoken to Dr. Ghassan Abu Sitta. He's a Médecin Sans Frontières surgeon, one of them working in Gaza. And he says a ground invasion is going to cause a humanitarian disaster. Let me just play you that. It'll be an absolute catastrophe, carnage. Gaza is so densely populated, two and a quarter million people in a very small area of land. This is a Turkish route. And if you go into Gaza, you go in knowing that you're going to have to commit massacres. Mark, when Hamas are using hostages as human shields, it seems that no amount of warnings or evacuations can prevent this situation getting bleaker and bloodier. Uh, you're you're not wrong, and uh, the doctor, when he was speaking, is not wrong. We know what happened. Uh, the Israelis went in uh, uh, on the ground in a more limited fashion in 2014. Uh, the result was 2,000 casualties. Uh, we already have more than 2,000 casualties uh, from the air campaign. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's no question uh, that there will be um, a lot of civilian uh, casualties as a result of an Israeli, in, uh, Israeli incursion. Um, but there, uh, there are differences in scale. Um, so that if you, the, the Israelis have made it clear that they are going to go into the north, that's Gaza City, um, and they are trying to get people to move south. Um, so if they do, and they go into the north when, you know, there's uh, only uh, 100,000 or so people left of the 1.1, 1.2 million who were there before, um, that clearly will have a big impact on how many uh, 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 civilian casualties there are. Yes. There will simply be fewer people there. Uh, but it will still be awful, and it will still be bloody, and it will still be politically very difficult to manage. This is uh, a, a crisis with very few good answers, to be honest. And we still don't understand, or and, and of course, the, one of the great difficulties of it is actually an exit strategy then for Israel, you know, even if they can reach their goal of crushing Hamas, what is the exit strategy? Uh, also a very good question, and also a reason to uh, wait and figure that out uh, before you go in. We know all too well um, what, you know, uh, a heat-of-the-moment invasion without a proper exit strategy, how that can end up. The U.S. saw it after 9-11 in Afghanistan, in Iraq. Um, uh, So, you know, a little extra time uh, to figure out what you're going to do at the end. Um, Start talking to partners, you know, perhaps the U.N. about some sort of administration for Gaza afterwards. Um, You know, these things would be smart. It seems a long way off at this point. Mark Champion, thank you so much for your analysis. That's Bloomberg Opinion columnist Mark Champion. Now, this is going to reverberate through into UK politics. As I say, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is going to be speaking in the House of Commons this afternoon to MPs about the government's response. And it's the first time that Parliament will be able to debate the issue since the conflict started. For analysis, we're also joined by Adam Blenford from our UK government team. Adam Both Keir Starmer, the opposition Labour leader, and Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, are speaking for the first time on this this afternoon in Parliament. What are they likely to say? Well, Sunak has already come out um, with a statement and has obviously been the first response as Prime Minister of the the UK in recent days. And he's been steadfastly 
behind Israel and he's been I think this morning visiting a Jewish community site um, and offering uh, repeated and fulsome support for Israel's right to defend itself and um, solidarity with Israel's uh, with Israel's loss and uh, and and very much sitting in 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 that position um Keir Starmer on the other and he'll repeat that in parliament he, mm. he will make that case very strongly that the UK is four square behind Israel which has always been an ally Keir Starmer's position is perhaps slightly more complicated you know the Labour Party has just um re-attracted as it were brought back many of its Jewish mem- former members who left the party under Jeremy Corbyn's time as leader um they just held their conference last week where lots of people came back their Jewish members came back for the first time and yet under the same Labour banner. They have a lot of uh, members and supporters and voters who are more naturally uh, inclined to support the cause of Palestinian rights. Um, so the Labour the Labour Party leader is in a is in a, is in a bit more of a tricky political triangulation position. And um, as as perhaps. Uh, um, unsavoury as it might look uh, the prime minister is is probably going to allow him to squirm a little bit on that yeah um indeed well when it comes to the labor party two councillors who actually quit over keir starmer's comments um will things though get harder with a ground offensive one surely has to think that that could be quite inevitable um will rishi sunak continue to echo the u.s position obviously the uk has again, a historic um, significance in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You know, let's put that, um, that's perhaps putting it very mildly, Mm -hmm. but um, how is the UK going to navigate something that the colonial history of the UK makes very difficult too? I mean, I think if you, if you heard what Mark just said there, everything will get more acute. Everything will get more difficult. The images will become more um, hard to bear. The stories will become uh, more tragic. Um, and uh, attention, obviously, is shifting in the in this country and perhaps you know around in European countries in the United States from the initial shock and horror of last week's attacks in Israel, which which mm. dominated early stages of coverage. Now the pictures we're all seeing are, are are of what's going on in Gaza and what's still to come. That will bear down. You know, if, if Rishi Sunak is trying to stand united and consistently behind Israel, that will that the images will then pressure him to moderate his position in some way uh, and, and Keir Starmer w- will also be will, be will be pressured increasingly by people who, who, who suggest that a progressive or a Labour leader you know, must, must not be quite so behind uh, a, a country engaging in acts of warfare Especially if they end up being blatantly disproportionate indeed uh, you know how how it plays it's going it's going to put a lot of pressure and it's doing the same thing as i think mark alluded to in in other european countries you know um emmanuel macron in france france has the largest jewish community in europe the largest muslim community in europe there's the tension there so speaking to the ceo of chatham house bronwyn maddox at labor party conference in fact last week and i asked her um if this does escalate into a wider conflict in the middle east what would happen in terms of the UK and the US? And she says, for the US, it it wouldn't um it wouldn't even take a heartbeat. In in a heartbeat, it would choose Israel over Ukraine. And I wonder what the impact is for UK foreign policy because we're closer to Ukraine, and economically, strategically, surely Ukraine more important than Israel. So where does this leave our policy on this other war closer to home? Um, the 
Ukraine policy is is more bedded in. You know, the the war has been ongoing now for uh, unfortunately, you know, eighteen months and more. Um, there are f- much. We do have more fiscal constraints, though. I mean, we we are we are getting involved militarily in aid to Ukraine uh, uh, to the tune of many billions of pounds. That those. Those programs are both ongoing and Rishi Sunak in particular as a security minded conservative prime minister will be minded not to mm. not to roll back from those. Um, fiscal constraints will will come into bear at some point. Um, but I think Israel receives most of its uh, military aid from the United States. And, and Joe Biden came out yesterday to say that they have the capacity to to deliver both programs at the same time. Mm. Um so but, in a way, the uh, UK won't have to choose. The UK probably won't have to choose quite so much, um, but it's a very good point and it's one to watch. Yeah. Um, I suppose the, the last thought is, does the UK have any diplomatic levers actually to pull here? Or is it simply that we are going to be an ally to the United States in this, in this issue? The UK used to be uh, one of the... It used to bring its influence to bear with the United, with the European Union when yeah. it was a member of the EU. Um, it used to be part of, a, of an, an ancient gathering called the Quad, which tried to sort of, uh, you know, negotiate Middle East uh, settlements. Um, these days, it's more of a lone actor. Uh, it's more in line simply with the US position. It's trying mm. to bring a little bit of influence to bear, as you as you alluded to, Ka- Caroline. Um, the the historical issues do sometimes rear their head, especially when trying to be even-handed with the Palestinians. Um, so it's kind of a matter of uh, you know the art of the possible, really, as is all, as with all as with all diplomacy now. All right, Adam Blanford, he is the managing editor of the News Desk for IMHIA. Thank you so much for being with us. So the situation in the Middle East understandably overshadowed the Labour Party conference in Liverpool last week, which Lizzie, you and I both attended. It meant that the opposition party, though, in some senses, was spared the sort of pressure and scrutiny of delivering more information on their own domestic policies. And this, as we are potentially 15 months out from the next UK general election. So the specifics are important and here at Bloomberg our Europe economist Anna Andrade has been crunching the numbers looking at Labour's plans on how to borrow, how to invest, how to grow the UK economy and she joins us now. Anna really great to have you with us. Now you're actually you have looked at some of these Labour plans and we again we don't have that much detail on it but you do think that the pledge could significantly increase UK GDP. By how much and how would they do it? Good morning. So what we did it was just a simple exercise where we looked, you know, we don't, as you said, we don't have any plans of how much, how permanent and, uh, you know, in which in which they're going to spend. And all, all of these details matter, uh, you know, for the impact on, on the economy, for the long-term impact on the economy. But what we did was just a simple exercise of looking um, at what would happen to the economy if... Um, if Labour decided to close the historic gap between the G7 and the UK on public investment. So that would mean an extra 0.7 percentage points of GDP in public investment in the long term. And what we see is that that would lift the level, that would lift the level of output by 1.5% in the long run. Now, if Labour wanted to get double the boost to the economy, it, you know, its, its efforts would need to be seriously more ambitious um, because they would need to lift public investment to 4.5% of GDP from 2.9% where it stands there. And that would leave the UK only like at the top of the G7 pack, only really lagging uh, Japan. And that would indeed deliver the 3% boost to the economy. 
just explain the problem that Labour is trying to fix here. I mean, how bad is the UK's investment problem? So we've known for a while that the UK has an investment problem compared to the G7, so to its peers, to the G7 average. And you can see that in the public investment numbers and in the business investment numbers. So there's been an historic gap um, in the public investment within the UK and its G7 peers that has run around uh, one percentage point of GDP. Um, and the you know the good news is that recently, over recent quarters, that gap has narrowed. But the bad news is that when you take on the OBR's plan for public capital spending over, you know, the medium term, that gap is only set to widen further um, because there's a lot of, you know, fiscal consolidation uh, baked into this into these plans. Um, so essentially what we did um, in this note that we put out was just seeing, you know, what would happen to the economy uh, if Starmer really tries to close this, you know, historic gap between uh, the UK uh, and okay. G7. And sorry, just to go, to go into the basics of it, what are you talking about when you say investment, public investment and private what is what is that well public investment is everything that you know the state invests in schools in infrastructure and business investment when i mean private sorry i mean business investment is more you know what's done by the by the businesses in the uk that that excludes residential but in both those areas there's been an historic lag in the uk when you look at it and compare it with the g7 so before we get into how much this could actually boost the economy let's just unpack a bit about the promises here so rachel Weaves, the shadow chancellor, says that each pound of public investment is going to unlock three pounds of private investment. Is that actually achievable? Uh, well, to us, that sounds a bit optimistic. Um, mm. So, and we kind of referenced it in the note. So, if you do look at existing literature, there are several ways you can go about modeling public investment. But what Rachel Reeves was talking about specifically was about a channel known as crowding in. Uh, so, you know, the kind of um, the channel, the, the mechanism where each additional money in private uh, investment kind of brings in uh, private, uh, private into, into investing more. And what the literature actually says is that and this is from the IMF, not till this year actually, uh, kind of says that every one additional pound in public investment leads to 50 pence. Um, of, 50p? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so so that's that's kind of, um, you know, that's, it, it does seem too optimistic, but we also need to consider that there's other, uh, there's other effects um, from public investment that can, you know, be accounted for. So productivity, for instance, so beyond crowding in, it could be that if a state decides to, you know, construct a school or invest in R&D, then that brings significant additional productivity gains and that could, you know, boost the the impact from, from public investment. Yeah, when we were at Labour Party conference, I asked the Shadow Chancellor, Rachel Reeves, how she could know that she wouldn't provoke an unwelcome market reaction. You've got yields high, debt already 99% of GDP, and we saw how the markets punished Liz Truss last year, but all she could tell me was that she's going to be cautious, that she would have ironclad fiscal rules. Do you really think that that's going to wash with investors? Well, I think, I mean, I think what we saw last year was also a reaction, was essentially a reaction to unfunded um, spending 
cuts. Uh, and I think it was also a dismissal, a reaction to a dismissal of the whole institutional processes that, you know, s- uh, ensure fiscal sustainability in the UK. I think maybe if Labour does want to follow this strategy where it wants to inv- increase inv- borrowing to invest, it does need to play, you know, by the OBR rules and by the institutional rules. That reduces the risk a bit. Then the probably the most ugly part is that, you know, any increase in public investment, I mean, it depends on how much it brings to the economy. But I think part of it will need to be funded um, and that's likely to you know mean higher taxes uh, and you know that's probably the bit that you know Reeves doesn't want to get into yeah no absolutely but but look I mean the other factor though is what what is the alternative you know the productivity issue for Britain is 20 if not 30 years old the UK needs to raise um, living standards it can only do that by growing the economy I mean what what choice does the next government frankly whoever they are have they've got to try to deliver on growth and that means investing doesn't it yes so I think the the problem if you look at and you know Bailey actually mentioned this that uh, you know the UK the Bank of England yeah, yeah that the UK government kind of um, needed to um, tackle two of the problems facing the UK economy, which was labor, limited labor supply and investment. And when you think about GDP in the long run, it's really those two resources and those two inputs that matter. So investment is a crucial part of it. And that's kind of why, you know, we say, you know, regardless of you know, the benefits, the size of the benefits that it brings. Uh, We think that, you know, closing the gap would lead to a boost to GDP of 1.5%. And that's significant. Um, So, you know, it's worth, it's something that it's worth doing and that, you know, you cannot delay for that, that longer. Okay, Anna Andrade crunching the numbers for us on Labour's economic plans. Really great to have you with us. That's our Europe economist, Anna Andrade. Okay, that's it from us for today. Of course, we'll we'll be back with much more tomorrow. We'll continue to follow the Israel-Hamas war, the implications for the UK, for Europe and for politics here, as, of course, we're back from recess and, and Parliament is in session. And the economic story continues as well, of course. We've got inflation data coming tomorrow at 7 from the Office for National Statistics. Year on year, economists surveyed by Bloomberg reckon that it's actually going to drop uh, from 6.7% in August to 6.6% in September. And then later in the week, we also get the latest jobs data. Are we still going to see this tightness in the labour market or will we get some easing there? Something that the government, of course, has been trying to work on as well. Well, if you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.